welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, Molly Hemingway, who is a senior editor at The Federalist and Fox News contributor, joins us to talk about her new book, Justice on Trial, which she co-authored with Carrie Severino. It is now a number one bestseller, and that comes as no surprise since Molly and Carrie combined their legal and journalistic expertise to bring us the truth on the Kavanaugh nomination and really the trial that he was put underneath. Um, They interviewed a hundred key players for this book, including the president, the vice president, dozens of senators, as well as people who know Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford personally. So the result is a book that not only tells a story of what actually happened during the Kavanaugh confirmation, but also what this means for the future of the Supreme Court. Molly, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Beverly. So the first thing I want to ask you about the book itself, I I find that it reads as a novel. Was that part of putting this all together? Did you have the average person in mind who is not a legal expert, um, but a book that anybody could read and follow and enjoy and probably get frustrated with when you think about the process? Did you think about that average person? Is that who this book is for? We absolutely wanted this to be read by a general audience. I think legal eagles were watching this with a particular attention, but this was something that riveted the whole nation. So uh, from the very beginning, we, when we thought about how we wanted justice on trial to go, the book, we wanted it to be a compelling story because we knew it was a compelling story. Carrie had worked on uh, the nomination battle. I had covered it. We, we had already known that, that there were so many interesting things that could be told in a, in a nice um story, but we also had no idea what we didn't know. As we began interviewing all of these people, we realized that there were so many things that had happened behind the scenes, discussions that were held, uh, you know, fights that nearly broke out, and being able to tell all those additional anecdotes was, was really fun. But we also combine it with context and history. Carrie Severino, my co-author, is a Harvard Law School graduate. She clerked for Justice Thomas on the Supreme Court, so she has really great knowledge of the court confirmation battles and their history. And we studied what had been written on it. And we put all that context in so that people understood why what happened last year happened. And of course, it really did capture the attention of the American public because it was quite the spectacle that took place. I think it's even interesting. You had Republicans and conservatives who maybe they don't agree on their viewpoints of Donald Trump really came together on this issue. And so, so many people were riveted by it. But were you surprised as you went through all these interviews and the research that you did? Did this become a more surprising story than you had even expected? There were a lot of times when we would come home from interviews and just say, like, we cannot believe what we just learned or what happened. Uh, But even what you just talked about with the with the uh, how people who don't like Trump and people who do like Trump, were both going through this together. That's actually part of the story that we tell about what Brett Kavanaugh was going through. He was a guy who assumed that Donald Trump would not pick him because he was so closely aligned with the Bushes. He was very much like the Bushes. He worked in that administration. He was nominated to be a federal judge by George W. Bush. He genuinely admires them. They, they like each other. Uh, Ashley Kavanaugh, Brett's wife, it was George W. Bush's personal secretary going back to Texas. Uh, when they got married, when Brett and Ashley got married, the Bushes hosted a party for them on, in the Rose Garden. 
So he doesn't think he's going to be a Trump nominee. And then when he is a Trump nominee, it begins this sort of, uh, not a battle, but there are these different people giving him advice about how to handle the nomination process. And we kept hearing from a lot of people who would say that the Bushies wanted him to be very, not meek, but, you know, um, nice and and apologetic almost um, about what Christine Blasey Ford was going through. And then White House counsel Don McGahn, who himself was a, was a Bush appointee, uh, but, but also now working for Trump, would say, remember, you're a Trump nominee and Trump fights. And so just wrestling with those different uh, impulses is a part of the story we tell and how it ends up with Brett Kavanaugh having to fight not for a Supreme Court seat, but just his name and his reputation and his honor and how he does that is really interesting, I think. And I would say a distinct place where you could see those two different styles where the difference, the difference in the interview that he gave with his wife, Ashley, with Martha McCollum, with Fox News, which didn't play well. It was very, uh, I guess the emotion was not there. I guess that would factor into the bushy side of it that you're talking about. And then what I want to play a clip for us right now, just remind everybody of when he spoke, finally had the chance to speak, to defend his name, his family in front of the Senate during that hearing. Let's play that clip. And then I want to get a comment from you on that, Molly. The day after the allegation appeared, I told this committee that I wanted a hearing as soon as possible to clear my name. I demanded a hearing for the very next day. Unfortunately, it took the committee 10 days to get to this hearing. In those 10 long days, as was predictable and as I predicted, my family and my name have been totally and permanently destroyed by vicious and false additional accusations. The 10-day delay has been harmful to me and my family, to the Supreme Court, and to the country. Molly, would you say that those two different times where we finally heard him speak, is that an example of the difference in in the style and the tone um, between the Bushy side, which you talk about, and then the Trump fighting side? Is that a distinct change? That is absolutely what our sources were talking to us about. And one of the things I just want to reiterate that we thought was kind of funny is when people would talk about the Bushy approach, we were very confused because sometimes they themselves had been in the Bush administration, but they were talking about this difference in style. When the Martha McCallum interview is set up, that is set up because they know that after weeks of having you know a drip, drip, drip of stories coming out against him, that Brett Kavanaugh needs to present himself back to the American people. The last time they really saw him was if they watched the first round of hearings or if they remember when President Trump nominated him. So he's reintroducing himself and he's definitely getting the counsel to just say, uh, you know, that he loves women. He's had a history of loving women, uh, taking care of them professionally and otherwise. And it just doesn't, it wasn't horrible. It just wasn't the home run that people thought he might need to survive the confirmation process. His own instincts, by the way, from the moment the, the allegation came out, was to fight hard. The day that it comes out, he is ready to fight. So it was uh, what you saw in the eventual testimony was actually how he had been all along. 
And I found that to be so compelling, especially even have the image of his wife sitting behind him as he's finally able to speak after all these things that have been said about him. And even though he did raise his voice, even though he was on the verge of crying, there was something about the authenticity of that and the rawness of that, that I think really connected to the average person out there and changed their mind about him. Do you find that that fighting style really was a turning point of public perception? Well, absolutely. And what's remarkable about that is what had happened earlier in the day. We talked with people who were in the hearing room watching both Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh. When she testified, while she didn't have any support for her allegation, she did have a lot of emotion that people were moved by, uh, particularly people in the media who said that even the lack of uh, corroboration or the holes in her story made her seem more credible, which is not quite how that works, but that's how, that, that's how it was playing in the media. The first chink comes in the armor comes when Rachel Mitchell the prosecutor who was hired by Republicans to ask questions of Blasey Ford um, starts showing that there are some holes in her story, some inconsistencies, that claims that had been made were false, such as the claim that she was unable to fly to the hearing and therefore it needed to be delayed interminably. Um, so there was already a bit of a softening, but when Brett Kavanaugh comes out and defends himself, it absolutely changed the dynamic of the entire day that by the end of the day, no one's even talking about the allegations as if they have support. They change to talking about his temperament. And so just being able to tell that whole story of what happened that day uh, was, was an important part that we, you know, that we cover in Justice on Trial. And we have some good behind-the-scenes details about his, uh, his coaching almost by Don McGahn right before he heads out to testify. Tell us a little bit about the political maneuvering and tactics by the Democrats when this all takes place. Of course, the time frame alone, the Democrats knew about this claim that Christine Blasey Ford had had submitted and had brought to Democrats' attention prior. How did they play with the timing and really try to orchestrate this to turn into the big deal that it became? Right. First off, it's worth remembering that the Senate has procedures for how to handle allegations that need to be kept confidential. These procedures were put in place after the debacle of the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings. They are well established. They are used routinely for presidential nominees because, believe it or not, allegations come forward like this all the time, you know, regardless of if it's a Republican nominee or Democratic nominee. So it's a process they're very familiar with. It protects the whistleblower or the accuser, and it also protects the accused. Diane Feinstein received a letter in late July, and rather than put it through that process, she held on to the letter. That decision to hold on to the letter and not put it through the process ends up angering some moderate senators who felt that that decision alone showed that this was a game plan from the beginning and, and showed machinations that made them less likely to find the allegation credible. She holds on to it. She does immediately arrange a high-profile Democratic attorney to handle the issue who sets up a polygraph, and, and then later there's the media rollout of the allegation. Um, and she never shares it with Republican staff, even though she had it since July, until the only way they get it is because after it gets out in the media, she puts it into, into the FBI file and it gets back to the Republicans. So these were 
clear decisions to circumvent the process uh, that show political handling of a sensitive claim of sexual assault. Uh, but it backfired a bit on on Democrats because it was too obvious for some Republican senators. And what's fascinating, you write in the book and bring a lot more um, attention to this, is how that within this chaos, there was so much that was scripted. You talk about people who are protesting and how that was organized and people were flown there and they got paid. What did you find in uncovering just the, the, the protest and the people who were seemed so appalled by all of this? How much of that was being pushed by the Democrats? Well, again, this is where it's good to know that this is a typical approach taken by opponents of a Republican nominee, going back to Bork, in which groups work together to scuttle that nomination uh, by, you know, hundreds of actually um, progressive and liberal groups work together to scuttle that nomination. There was no difference with this situation in which within minutes of Brett Kavanaugh being announced, you have a large protest organized at the Supreme Court where something like 30 groups come together and denounce Kavanaugh, the guy who had been named just minutes earlier, and and thus began a summer of protest. You had people brought in from states that were uh, particularly important for you know moderate Democrats or moderate Republicans. Their airfare was paid for. They were given training on how to get arrested at the uh, at the eventual hearings or even before that in Senate hallways. They had their bail paid. And they were quite proud of actually having coordinated this, and they have been public about it. We look at how the funding of some of these groups and how it's orchestrated. And um, also, you mentioned the coordination with, with Democrats there. It gets down to, we report that Maisie Hirono has a conversation with Kamala Harris coming out of that second round of hearings. And Maisie Hirono, the senator from Hawaii, sort of brags about how they had uh, Christine Blasey Ford wear a blue suit and request a, a Coke or um, some caffeine so that they could make subtle allusions, which were immediately picked up on by the media, to the Anita Hill hearings that were referenced earlier. So this was well-coordinated. It was, um, you know, someone, someone worked hard to make sure this rollout went well. And I actually think it went well until Michael Avenatti went too far and people started realizing it was an orchestrated campaign rather than, you know, uh, breaking news that a guy who had gone through six background checks and was a well-respected federal judge was leading a secret double life. Tell me a little bit about what you um, witnessed in, in your research on this from a journalistic perspective, because the media was also complicit with so much of this uh, running accusations that weren't corroborated, seeming to throw all journalistic ethics out the window. Did you find more of that as you dug into this? We already knew from going through the experience that the media had not behaved as you would hope in, in terms of journalistic standards. It was something that when we, when we interviewed people, they were still angry about months later, and they gave us very specific examples of reporters writing things that they knew to be untrue and not correcting the record. Uh, but it was more the bigger picture issues of how, you know, every little stupid joke in Brett Kavanaugh's yearbook made by him or his friends was given front page coverage, you know, uh, blasted out on all this on all the media outlets where uh, things that cast doubt on the narrative that was being pushed about Christine Blasey Ford were downplayed or hidden or obscured 
The Washington Post flat out covered for uh, Christine Blasey Ford in their first story on her about the changing nature of her allegation, how it was always, it had evolved over time to include different people, different numbers of people, um, hiding the fact that Leland Kaiser was one of the alleged witnesses. And NBC News at one point actually has information that the supposed second witness of Michael Avenatti's outlandish gang rape uh, claims is denying what he claims she said, and she tells them that, and they don't run with it. They sit on it for weeks from before the confirmation vote to weeks after the confirmation vote. That's a level of propaganda or advocacy that is completely uh, beyond the pale. And we have trouble already with media credibility. It really took a hit somehow even worse those months. And I think because and this was said over and over again, the Democrats overplayed their hands so much. It really did bring some un or I guess senators that we wouldn't necessarily would come to the defense of something that Trump was promoting and, and of course in this form a judicial nominee you had Lindsey Graham making a speech that of course is still remembered to this day a passionate speech but you also have and this is someone who you talk about in the book we learn a lot more about Susan Collins in your book Senator Susan Collins who was the the vote that mattered this was the individual who with when it came to the Me Too movement trying to push against her, the Democrats trying to get her to vote a certain way, and of course the Republicans wanting her to vote a certain way. She was really that ultimate person put on the spot. What did you find in your your research on her and the conversations that you had on how thoughtful she was about the process she went through? I have covered Susan Collins for a long time now, and she has been remarkably consistent in who she is, and she really is a moderate Republican, you know, almost a liberal Republican. She's considered, she was considered and targeted as the most, one of the most gettable Republican votes. So even before Brett Kavanaugh is named, she starts getting threatening packages at her offices in Maine, like coat hangers that are supposed to be a threat about abortion. Um, she, she is targeted throughout the summer and by the time the allegations come forward, it gets even worse. But during the summer, she hires additional staff, a shocking number of additional staff, part-time and full-time, to go through the complete Brett Kavanaugh record. This is very uh, outside the norm for someone who's not on the Senate Judiciary Committee. She becomes so familiar with his record that she actually understands footnotes and how they play a role in his thinking judicial philosophy. She has a lengthy meeting with him in which she probes him about all sorts of questions. By all accounts, everyone who was there uh, that we spoke with said that it was the most prepared of any senator, uh, senator's meeting that they, that they went through. Um, she actually had many more questions she wanted to ask and arranges to, to have a second discussion with him, which she had a few weeks later. She showed that she took her advice and consent role extremely seriously. A lot of senators, pro or con, just sort of make reflexive decisions. And she showed that she took it seriously. She's done it with every nominee that has come before her. And it really paid off at the end when she didn't just vote to confirm him. She also gave a speech explaining due process, standards of evidence, rule of law, what, what Brett Kavanaugh's actual record on the bench was. Uh, and that speech was above and beyond what was required of her 
or could be asked of someone who had been targeted so viciously. One of her staff, by the way, ends up quitting after a, a, an abortion supporter calls that staff member and says he hopes she gets raped and that she gets pregnant with the rapist's baby and other threats of violence. And the staffer quits, just says it's too much to handle. Susan Collins thought it was the height of irony or just ridiculous that in the name of women's rights, people were getting women forced out of public service, as happened with some of her staff. And I think this leads to kind of wrapping up the conversation is in this book, you also talk about what this means for the future of the Supreme Court, future for nominations. I, I often wonder, I have wondered if Judge Kavanaugh had just said, I'm not going to continue in this process and bowed out, it would be even worse for people down the line. He stuck with it under the worst pressure and stress that anybody could imagine in these types of circumstances. Because it, the mob did seem to be pushed away and the importance of evidence did seem to play a role of this, what does this mean then for future nominations? What does this mean for the Supreme Court? What were really, what have been your final conclusions about this, this whole story? It was necessary to see this nomination through to confirmation so that people would not think that this could happen again without any consequences. But it's not sufficient to just have him uh, serve on, on the bench. A lot of people have not been held responsible for their bad behavior, whether that's senators who broke norms and rules of the Senate to behave the way that they did, or people who made false allegations who were referred for criminal prosecution at the Department of Justice, but nothing has happened to them. We tell the story in Justice on Trial about Ashley Kavanaugh praying that her husband won't receive the nomination. Not that she doesn't think he's the most qualified, she does. She just thinks they have a nice life. She knows how brutal confirmation processes can be, and she just doesn't want to deal with it. Of course, once she gets the nomination, she's very supportive. But if this is what happened when you replaced Anthony Kennedy, a swing vote and a conservative swing vote, with someone from Trump's list of nominees, how apocalyptic might it get if you're replacing an actual member of the liberal bloc, a Ruth Bader Ginsburg, with a Trump nominee? And so it's important that people be held accountable because this has happened in the past. It happened here with the Kavanaugh confirmation, and it would be naive to think it won't happen again. Well, Molly, congrats on the huge success of the book, and thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Beverly. And thank you all for joining us. If you have more interest in the topic we discussed, you can, of course, follow Molly on Twitter. She's at MZ Hemingway, and you can also find her work at thefederalist.com. Also, don't forget to buy her book, Justice on Trial. It's a number one bestseller for a reason. Also, do check out the Independent Women's Forum website. Jennifer Braceres, she is the director of IWF Center for Legal Policy, will be laying out how we choose judges and justices and what factors senators should consider consider in the confirmation process. So look for that on the IWF's website. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review. It does help. Also, we'd love it if you share this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.